Belarus weaponizing migrants together with classical military activities like major exercises which haven't been announced in advance uh, which might prefigure some kind of invasion of Ukraine who knows uh, and then you're doing reckless things like uh, shooting off debris in space that force people on the International Space Station to put on protective gear and take cover. It's not clear for NATO whether you know, this is just a smokescreen. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hey, Downlink listeners. This week, we're going to take a closer look at Monday's Russian anti-satellite missile test and the debris field it caused that forced seven astronauts and cosmonauts on board the International Space Station to take cover. This is Mission Control in Houston, working through evacuation procedures with Rajachari, the commander of NASA's Crew-3 mission. To answer your question earlier about suits, we can support you getting into suits at your discretion. It's your call. Just to note that the Soyuz crew is not in suits. And then heads up 15 minutes to the next debris field past TCA. Endurance copies. It is the uh, conjunction is still yellow risk, or has it changed? It's an equivalent yellow uh, for the next debris pass. And then also we, we are um, estimating that the probability of a hit to Dragon would be lower than the rest of ISS. And Houston Endurance, is uh, SpaceX on console to have a conversation on Dragon to Ground about forward actions if we do have a hit? And Endurance also, Houston, yes, uh, SpaceX is on console. If it's under half an hour, we are thinking about coming back on the station. If it's more than half an hour, we are thinking stay suited and potentially come back home. This is all if Dragon takes a hit. And Endurance Houston, uh, alteration to that proposal, if if Dragon takes a hit, we will get you back on station. We'll come back on the station regardless if Endurance takes a hit. That recording is from before the ISS was going to pass near the debris field of what had just been Russia's defunct satellite, the Cosmos 1408. Russia targeted this satellite with an anti-satellite, or ASAT, missile system called the PL-19 Nudal. It's a surface-to-space missile that was reportedly launched from a facility about 800 kilometers north of Moscow. I'm not going to mince words here. ASAT tests, especially the kind that are kinetic and create debris fields, are broadly regarded as reckless, bad behavior. But we'll get into that later. First, we should understand the geopolitical and security context. And for that, I spoke with Jamie Shea. He spent roughly 36 years serving on NATO's international staff in Brussels. For the last eight through 2019, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges. He spoke to me from his home in Brussels, Belgium. Hi, Jamie. Now that you've um, retired from NATO, what are you doing now? Um, I'm a senior fellow at a think tank in Brussels called Friends of Europe. I'm also a professor at a couple of uh, universities and doing sort of various uh, worthy uh, projects, uh, such as being part of a, a, of a network of retired military officers, uh, looking at the security implications of climate change. So uh, a diverse portfolio, uh, but mainly in the world of the uh, armchair strategist and the commentariat. 
you've been involved in European security for a very long time, and I bet you've been following the news about Russia's ASAT test. It wasn't the only military activity this week that's gotten the attention of the West. What's happening? Do you think that this ASAT test was actually a coincidence? No, I don't, uh, because what we're seeing uh, is Russia undertaking a number of provocative things uh, at the same time. For example, just a day or so ago, they tested for the second time in the week their new Zircon uh, hypersonic missile. Uh, they carried out uh, helicopter special forces exercises. Uh, with Belarus just a couple of kilometers away from where we have, of course, the Belarusian security forces pushing large numbers of migrants towards the border with uh, Poland. And then, they, of course, they conducted at the same time the ASAT test and mobilized 114,000 troops on the border with uh, eastern Ukraine and put on a great deal of hostile rhetoric about the West not understanding standing their red lines about NATO's provocations in the Black Sea. Oh, by the way, they also introduced a significant upgrade to their air and air defense assets in the Crimea uh, by introducing new forces, adding to what they have in the Crimea. So to some degree, uh, this is causing a lot of anxiety within NATO, because when you've got hybrid warfare activities, such as instrumentalizing migrants in Belarus, weaponizing migrants, together with classical military activities, like major exercises, which haven't been announced in advance, uh, which might prefigure some kind of invasion of Ukraine, who knows? Uh, and then you're doing reckless things like uh, shooting off debris in space that force people on the International Space Station to put on protective gear and take cover. It's not clear for NATO whether you know, this is just a smokescreen uh, whereby Russia hopes to sort of get away with it uh, and avoid criticism uh, because obviously everybody's focusing on something else like handling the migrant crisis or, or whether uh, the, as we saw in Crimea, back in 2014 with the Little Green Men, the hybrid activity you know, develops into something much more sinister uh, and, uh, and uh, actual use of military force. So uh, it keeps NATO on its guard. It keeps NATO guessing, uh, absolutely. But it certainly, as I said, by being a smokescreen, helps you know Russia to avoid perhaps the sort of criticism that the Chinese <laughs> were subjected to back in 2007 when they launched their ASAT uh, at a quieter time. Um, and of course, were accused of space vandalism by the amount of debris that they created up there. Interesting that you say that. It's not like Russia is new to the space domain. I mean, they understand orbital debris. So why do you think they actually launched this test at such a big target? I mean, the Cosmos satellite class isn't exactly small. Well, I think they've seen, you know, the Indians have now done it. As I mentioned, the Chinese have done it. So they feel that maybe there's a precedent uh, for that. Of course, they will claim that, you know, this is all harmless stuff because they're only taking out uh, a defunct satellite that, that belongs uh, uh, to them. Uh, but it's true. It's interesting because up until now, they seem to have mainly been sort of using geo-orbiting, uh, movable satellites like the one that came very close to the Franco-Italian satellite a few years ago uh, and alarmed the French and led the French to double their space budget in short order as they suddenly saw a need to harden their satellites uh, uh, against that possibility of cyber attacks or you know, jamming, spoofing, some kind of interference. So, so Russia, yes, seems to have sort of changed its tank from by moving from the the notion of you know disruption and spying and 
you know, just sort of posing problems for the Allies uh, through its space activities to uh, going to uh, an asset capability. I think two reasons. I think number one, Putin probably feels that he's nothing to lose any longer uh, when it comes to relations with the West. You know, the NATO-Russia Council is now uh, no, you know, defunct. Uh, Russia has suspended it, recalled its uh, uh, its uh, personnel who, uh, who who were there. Uh, and uh, obviously a demonstration, I think, uh, of the Russian capabilities at a time when obviously more and more uh, Western private sector companies are beginning to send up satellites, of course, you know, uh, we have Elon Musk and of course uh, SpaceX, you know, now delivering people to the International Space uh, Station. We, we have, you know, uh, movie actors going on their first space flight and so on. I think it's probably also Putin sort of reminding us that this is a domain in which Russia is highly competitive, has a number of different capabilities, and could therefore be a, a potential threat. Uh, but not much explanation was given as to how this fits into Russian strategy. I just think it's another way in which Putin loves to provoke, loves to demonstrate capability, keep us sort of guessing, and put us on the defensive. Well, then how should we, or or maybe I should say, can we, the West or NATO or the US respond? How can we make such an ASAT test more cost prohibitive strategically? Well, unfortunately, we don't yet have a, an international system of traffic management in space that can sort of declare this kind of activity I I illegal. Uh, the problem with the current 1967 UN Outer Space Treaty is it prevents you from putting weapons of mass destruction up in space, but it doesn't prevent you from introducing weapons from Earth uh, into uh, low orbit or higher orbit uh, uh, and uh, threatening or attacking space-based uh, objects. So the Russians are exploiting a, a legal loophole uh, which it's based on a largely obsolete treaty and the fact that we still haven't had in the UN any kind of uh, arrangement on the regulation of space traffic, which would clearly indicate routes, which would clearly indicate a system of early warning uh, and which would, uh, if you like, uh, ring fence. Uh, the sort of legitimate space activity for things like, you know, navigation, for banking, finance, for uh, the mapping of climate change, where we're doing this more and more using satellites that are looking at the oceans, acidity in the oceans, uh, all of the things, telecommunications, 5G communications, where we are relying upon space. I think the, the Russians, by doing this, are not just demonstrating their capability, but reminding us that uh, these are areas where they see uh, the militarization of space is an increasing part of security. They know fully well that that's an area which the West, the, Euro the US and the Europeans have exploited for many years. Uh, and I think they just sort of want to make a point that if there is a military, uh, going to be a militarization of space, they are able to play in that across the full spectrum, whether it comes like, to space-based capabilities, cyber and hacking, uh, jamming, uh, laser-type capabilities, and now with traditional anti-sat weapons. So in a way, it's an urgent call to get back to the business, which we really should have attended to a long time ago, uh, you know, before there is the race to space with the private sector and microsatellites and nanosatellites and, you know, everybody going up there into some kind of wild west, that we need to get to the negotiating table and define, you know, certain rules of the game. It's rather like sort of 
suddenly you know going from the number of cars that you had in 1900 on the streets to the number of cars that we have today in 2021 but in the meantime nobody's built secure roads nobody's decided whether we drive on the left or the right nobody has you know has uh, has decided you know what red uh, amber and, uh, and green mean in the traffic light system nobody has sort of in, put in place any kind of speeding limits there's no highway patrol to stop you when you're speeding and there's no highway code to know what correct driving practices are so i think it does show that there's a big need now for nato to get seriously into the business of defining what is acceptable behavior in space just like we've been trying to do when it comes to acceptable state behavior in the in the cyber uh, area uh, and get the Chinese and the Russians and others like the Iranians or the North Koreans that have developed recently, shown recently a capability to launch satellites. Uh, um, the Indians I mentioned already, get them all uh, around the table. Thank you very much for your insights, Jamie. We're Thank you very much, Laura, for the opportunity again uh, today. Pleasure talking to you. We can now turn to what the debris field means for on-orbit and off-world exploration, commerce, and security. Russia has publicly stated that the destruction of its satellite is no big deal. But here's the problem. Things that are in orbit whip around the planet at roughly 8 kilometers a second, or in other words, 25 times the speed at which a 9-millimeter bullet from a Beretta pistol exits the chamber. Now, when something that small, like a nine millimeter bullet travels that fast, makes contact with something else in orbit, which will be moving just as fast, it creates a hole. But if the piece of debris is bigger, it's a smash up. That creates yet another debris field, a huge concern for satellite operators. For that perspective, here's Daniel Dumbacher in Ruston, Virginia. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, glad to do it, Laura. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm all right. It's a beautiful day here in Washington, D.C. Could you do my audience a favor and introduce yourself and tell us um, what it is that you do? Sure. Happy to. I'm Daniel uh, Dumbacher, and I'm the executive director of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, or as we call it, AIAA. And we are the world's largest aerospace professional society, uh, 30,000 members around the globe, students all the way, high school students all the way through retirees. Our job is to uh, help our members and uh, their organizations, that is corporate industry and academia, succeed and help move the aerospace industry along. When the news that Russia tested its new doll anti-satellite missile, where were you? What were you actually doing? You were pretty busy at that time, weren't you? Yeah, I, I was pretty busy. A lot of us were. We were actually at the new AIAA Ascend Forum. Uh, it's our forum that we, that this was our first in-person meeting uh, in a year and a half plus. And it was with, with all the space people. And when news broke, we were scurrying around trying to, first of all, figuring out what happened and how it happened as much as we could. And then also recognizing right away that one of the major themes we had for our, our forum, which was space domain awareness and space traffic management, uh, was right on the mark. It became quite a topic of conversation, very relevant, very timely. Uh, and it led to some good conversations about what some of the near-term next steps and priorities need to be. So just to follow up on that, you know, what was your first reaction 
you know, you were leading that conference and, and this conference is really about living and commercial activity off world. Yeah, our, our theme for Ascend has been and continues to be building our off-world future. And, and obviously, if we're going to build our off-world future and bring to bear or bring to fruition the low Earth space economy and move to the moon in a sustainable way and then on to Mars and wherever beyond that, this space domain awareness and space traffic management becomes a big issue because uh, you have to be able to operate in low Earth orbit in all of the various orbits. Uh, you have to be able to get through those orbits to go do other things out towards the moon and, and beyond. So this is a matter of uh, not just economic success down the road globally. Uh, it's also a matter of, of human safety when you consider the impact on the space station astronauts and, and the whole intent of citizen astronauts and more and more people flying in space. This is going to become a bigger and bigger issue. And it's important that we recognize the urgency and, and, and really take it on and, and start working this one hard. How does this actually affect how people or organizations that want to operate off-world, I mean, how does this impact their programs, knowing that we don't really have anything in place to stop an ASAT test at this time? It impacts their programs uh, in a lot of ways. Obviously, there's the national defense, national security aspects to things because we don't want we don't want to lose our assets in orbit uh, that we need for national security, and the debris cloud that comes out of this. And we talk about 1,500 trackable items. What that does not account for are the untrackable ones. And what this means for people is. If you're going to put satellites or space station, commercial space stations in orbit and those kinds of things, one, you have to be able to maneuver around the trackable ones and what, what, as you find them so that you can get out of the way. Uh, the other aspect is those that debris field that you cannot track that's still moving at 17,000 miles an hour can have impact. And we've seen this on shuttle station can have um, significant impact to the hardware and you have to design for it and protect for it. And then you have to have the emergency procedures in place like space station exercised in order to protect the, the crews that are up there. So it, it factors heavily into the design aspects, the operational aspects uh, from, a, from a national security perspective, as well as a civil space, commercial space perspective. So uh, this, this is a, this touches space domain awareness, um, space debris touches anyone that wants to operate uh, in any of the low Earth orbits. This may be just an aside, but when I take that even further, considering that we have so many um, young bootstrapping companies and 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 folks with ideas and garages on how to launch shoeboxes and and you know, do some good work here on the earth. I mean, this must also impact their plans and it must also impact investors on how they see their investment and whether they invest in sending something up into space. It, it absolutely does uh, because now it's, uh, they, have to, they have to be able, that, that satellite or asset that they wanna put in space now has to be designed for potential impact of the untrackable debris. Uh, and it has to have maneuvering capability uh, to get out of the way or to avoid a conjunction as we call it uh, in, as, as it goes through operation. So there are those direct impacts 
and it's uh, it's going to be a challenge. And it, it it's now a new it, it's an additional hurdle, frankly, uh, that needs to be overcome from a business perspective and an operational perspective. What do you think actually needs to happen to actually stop these kinds of tests, both here in the United States or even internationally? Well, I think this is obviously a a global international question and problem that needs to be addressed. So we need to get to norms of behavior uh, and agreements on the rules of the road and what those need to be so that we don't have these kinds of activities. And and there also has to be enforcement that follows through on that. Uh, If you look at it from a U.S. perspective, in particular, uh, the National Space Council in the past approved what's referred to as Space Policy Directive 3 that identifies who should be responsible, who should be the lead agency in the government, that being the Department of Commerce. And now we're in a position where the executive branch has spoken And now we're relying and waiting on the legislative branch to put that proposal into legislation and to fund it. And that is extremely important because we need to have the person and the organization to lead or orchestrate all of the various activities that are needed. Right now, we we rely on on the Space Force and and the Department of Defense uh, to basically be the traffic cop. And now, as the commercial industry grows, we need this overall national strategy that with the capability to work among all of the various government agencies, bring the industry forward, work with academia, so that we have the right orchestration and the right strategy in place to go off and work this. And right now, one of the priorities that we have at AIAA is a space traffic management working coalition, uh, because we saw the, the need coming. We didn't know it was going to happen this fast, but we have put a group in place that has been doing the the advocacy, particularly on the Hill, for the need to get SPD3 into legislation, get the funding in place, uh, get the mechanism set up at the Department of Commerce at the right level so that we can get this national strategy and this orchestration going because we really need the leadership. We need that person or persons uh, that are going to be leading this in place so that we can get off and, and, and start really focusing in on the right problems and the right priorities and, and addressing the, the issues of the day. There's an urgency to this that I cannot overstate at this point, particularly with the events of this week, for this to get worked quickly so we can, um, so that we can be moving out. Thank you, Dan, for coming on the downlink. My pleasure, Laura. Glad to do it. You can see there are efforts to codify norms of space behavior in the United States. It's something that the French president and U.S. vice president last week agreed to work on together. But because almost every nation depends on space-based assets, there is a movement inside the U.N. that potentially could lead to at least guidelines, if not a treaty. This is British Ambassador Aidan Little. He and his government have been leading the effort to get something on the books at the United Nations. He spoke to me from Geneva, Switzerland. Hello, Aidan. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start off by having you explain to the audience um, what it is that you do in Geneva? So I am the UK's permanent representative to the Conference on Disarmament. Um, The Conference on Disarmament is a a negotiating forum based in Geneva, which looks mainly at nuclear and space issues. 
Um, but in this capacity, I also do a bit of work in New York. I had the UK delegation to the UN General Assembly's first committee, for example, on uh, disarmament and international security. So it's a sort of roving role, basically looking at anything to do with, uh, with arms control and disarmament. So, you know, I have you here because of um, the Russia ASAT test, uh, where they used a, a new doll missile. I want to know, you know, what was your first reaction? How did you hear about it? Were you surprised? Um, I, I wasn't I wasn't surprised. I was I was saddened, I think is probably the best way of putting it. I mean, it's it's not the first time this has happened. I mean, several countries have tested anti-satellite missiles over the years. I mean, this is technology really that goes back decades. But I had hoped that we were out of the era of these sort of destructive missile tests, you know, tests where you actually send up a missile and you destroy something in space, because I, th I think that is now widely accepted to be grossly irresponsible, both because of the amount of debris it causes, but also because of the destabilizing uh, effect that that can that can have on relationships between between states when it comes to space. So um, it wasn't surprising to know that Russia had this technology. We know they've been working on it, um, it but it was it was I was I was disappointed that they chose to demonstrate it in this way. You know, the secretaries of state and defense here in the U.S. You know, they've been pretty blistering in their condemnations. You know, what has been the U.K.'s response and you know what are you hearing from your counterparts whether they're spacefaring or not so i mean the reaction from from the uk was was pretty similar to, to that in the us and, and various other countries i know that lots of other countries that uh, have, have issued um, statements or reactions as as well i mean our, our, our defense secretary um said it showed a complete disregard for the security uh, safety and sustainability of outer space um, a foreign office minister uh, condemned it, so it's it, it, it's it's had quite a quite a wide uh, uh, a wide reaction uh, in in the UK and I know many other other countries as well. You know, obviously one of the issues that this causes is debris, and that's that's of sort of particular concern to to, to spacefaring states because we're worried about the the potential damage it can cause to to our own objects, but also to to you know the the space environment in in general. But you know this is, this should be of concern to non-spacefaring states as well. Of course, lots of states have ambitions to 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 operate in space, uh, and it's becoming easier and more accessible every year now for for a wider range of states and and private organisations as well. And tests like this just make that more more difficult for everybody, um, and it it can it contaminates what is what is a global commons. You know, outer space belongs to everybody, uh, and, and and actions like this pollute it and make it more dangerous and more difficult to operate there for, for, for us all. And whether whether we have objects in space ourselves or not, everybody now relies on space for their for their own uh, for their own lives, for that, you know, for every every state uh, relies on state on, on space for for its critical national infrastructure. So it's uh, it's it, it, it should be of concern to everybody, I think. You know, I want to get into um, the work that you're doing in Geneva to stop ASAT tests. And I'd like to start with something kind of odd. I saw this week a bit of a Twitter exchange between you and Ambassador Mikhail Yulianov. You know, who is he? And, you know, what was that exchange about? <laughs> um, so, uh... I mean, it was it was certainly a, fu a full in a full and frank exchange of views, but uh, but you're right. I think it did show it did shed some light on 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 some of the some of the political difficulties in this area. Mikhail Ulyanov is the Russian ambassador to the UN in Vienna. So 
what Mikhail was referring to was a draft treaty on the prevention of placement of weapons in space. And this was a draft that the Russians and Chinese jointly tabled in the Conference on Disarmament uh, back in 2008, I think it was. Uh, and then they, they tabled a new revised uh, version a few years ago, I think in 2014. And the idea of this draft treaty was that it would, well, prevent the placement of weapons in outer space. What they mean by that is that it should be prohibited to place weapons in orbit. Now, the Outer Space Treaty of 1967 already prohibits the placement of nuclear and other weapons of mass destruction on orbit. Uh, I'm yet to meet anybody who actually ever thought that that would be a good idea or something that anybody would want to do. But anyway, the Outer Space Treaty banned it. And the, the, the Russians, I think, uh, have been particularly fixated on this idea that, that some countries might also want to place conventional weapons on orbit, presumably to target targets on the ground. Now, again, this, this is something that, you know, uh, people have been talking about for a long time, but I don't think has really ever been a, that serious a, a prospect. But it's certainly something that the Russians have been concerned about, and this was the, this was the, the, the thrust of their treaty. Now, many delegations, including my own, have been opposed to that treaty for many reasons, partly because it doesn't have any verification mechanism, and a, a crucial part of arms control treaties is being able to verify that uh, all parties are abiding by them. That's very difficult in space for a whole host of technical reasons, but there was no, that wasn't really addressed in the in the draft treaty. But I think more more to the point, it, it, it's very narrowly focused on a range of issues which, which, which don't really, I, I think, imperil international peace and security. What really is, is the problem is the targeting of space systems from the earth or from space. Um, because these are systems that, as I say, we all we all rely on, and, and that's more true now than it ever has been before. So, from our point of view, it's it's a it, it's a flawed treaty on its own terms, but it's also something that's a, it's it's not addressing the real problem, uh, and, uh, and and that's why we haven't really seen it as a as a viable starting point for negotiations. Well, in that vein, you know, then let's explain what it is that you're working on, because that what you're working on does seem to address that. It seems to address, you know, what's going on now. And could you also tell us where it is in the process? Yeah. So the um, so the process we've initiated in the General Assembly is uh, is focused on what we're calling responsible behaviours. Uh, the, the the full title of the resolution is uh, reducing space threats through norms, rules, and principles of responsible behaviours. And the idea of this is that we need to look at space security in a different way. So for a long time, uh, and, and the Russian proposal is, is part of this, for a long time, people have been tending to look at space as, firstly, as a sort of problem for the for the superpowers to solve, if you like, as a sort of US-Soviet or US-Russian problem. But they've also been looking at it in terms of, you know, a, a, a legally binding treaty to prevent the placement of weapons. As I say, that's that's not really what we see as being the the main problem in outer space, and we see the the sort of exclusive focus on this as great power competition as not being particularly relevant today either. You know, as I say, everybody depends on space. Uh, more and more companies, countries are wanting to get involved in outer space, and so this is a this is a much broader problem. Uh, and because it's a much broader problem. We think we need a, a new approach, which uh, is inclusive, uh, which involves every uh, member of the United Nations, not just a uh, not just a small handful, uh, and one which looks at the problem from first principles, that that looks at the the threats to space systems as they are today, not as they were 40 years ago, 
uh, and which 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 considers a whole range of diplomatic tools that we have to deal with them. Treaties might be part of it, and and again, actually, particularly on ASAP testing, that might well be be something that lends itself to a treaty-based approach. But there will be lots of other problems, uh, for example, on on data links or spoofing or jamming, uh, which might lend themselves to a to a, a sort of lighter touch process, which is more um, to to take into account the technological developments and and the way the threats are evolving. So it's it's a multifaceted, complex problem. And it needs a whole range of tools to fix it. And, and that's what our approach is designed to bring together. You've had actually some success, something that's a bit more on the official side. Can you explain what that is and where it's going? Yeah. So this is this is the this is the well, the resolution that we uh, we tabled a few weeks ago in the UN was passed uh, with 163 votes uh, in favor, which was which was very pleasing. But it's really that that's the, the the sort of culmination, really, of a three year program to try and try and change the conversation on outer space security. As I said, you know, we you know, it's been stuck really for a very long time. We, we couldn't afford to let it be stuck any longer. And, and, and that's why we have this new uh, this new initiative. And lastly, what's the future if we don't get that baseline of normative behaviors, whether it's by treaty or by handshake? What is the future holding for us if we don't you know, get our act together? Well, it's tempting to say that that space is sort of ungoverned, but it's it's not. I mean, there are rules that already apply to outer space. The UN Charter uh, applies to outer space. International law applies to outer space, and of course, as you said, there's the Outer Space Treaty, which you know, although it is it isn't universal, uh, you know, most most um, spacefaring nations have have signed up to it. So you know that there are already lots of rules out there which do govern the way states behave in outer space. And as I say, the working group is going to try and take a more structured look at at, at exactly how that framework applies. Um, but it's true to say that the rules that apply to space, you know, were written in a different age, and they couldn't foresee everything that has happened since. And space is a a very rapidly evolving domain both in terms of the number of actors out there, the range of types of actors out there, and the and the types of technologies which are out there. Our worry is that if we don't take this opportunity, then we are going to be facing quite a dangerous situation in the years to come. Uh, we're going to be facing a domain in which there are a huge number of, of objects which are not operating according to a single governance framework. We're going to be facing a domain in which states feel able to behave irresponsibly without any comeback. And, and the risk for us is not only that it has more instances like the one we saw last week, which create debris, which make it more difficult for everybody to operate in the domain. But also, if you're going to have an unchecked development of these counter space technologies, you're going to risk raising tensions and you're going to see things that happen where states will miscalculate or they will misjudge other states intentions. And that will raise the risk of miscalculation. Uh, it will raise the risk of states taking preemptive actions, which might raise tensions and, and risk escalation. And we could face, you know, situations where you would cause conflict on Earth because of miscalculations in space. Uh, and that's something we can't afford. So, you know, there's there's a lot riding on this process. Uh, it won't come up with solutions overnight, but it's uh, it's really important that we uh, that we really all engage seriously in it. Thank you so much for your time, Aiden. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. 
That's it for this week. Before I go, I'd like to thank Vago Muradian, the Deaf Arrow Reports editor, for bringing space into his media family, and to Chris Cervello, who is the producer for all the Deaf Arrow Report podcasts, and who, by the way, also co-anchors the Cavus Ships podcast with Chris Cavus. Be sure to check it out. You can subscribe to the Downlink podcast on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, Or you can sign up for the Downlink's weekly newsletter on Substack, which carries the podcast as well. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.